0: I love that video. Jesus is for all of us, every person. He died for the whole world and he was sent for all of us. Bridge Kids, thank you for joining us. You are dismissed. And then the rest of us are just going to be in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In his book entitled Faith, Chuck Colson makes a comparison with God's invasion of planet Earth on that first Christmas day with D-Day, June 6, 1944, when the Allied uh, troops invaded the beaches of France to begin a a foot-by-foot conquest to Berlin, Germany. D-Day was the largest seaborne landing in the history of the world when the Allied troops crossed the English Channel to invade France. 150,000 American troops were committed to the initial invasion. There were 6,900 ships and boats that crossed the English Channel along with 4,100 landing craft. It took 12,000 planes to carry paratroopers, bombs, and supplies on that day. Within two weeks of the initial landing, the British had deployed 314,547 troops. It included 54,000 vehicles, 102,000 tons of supplies. The Americans added an additional 314,000 troops, 44,000 vehicles, and 116,000 tons of supplies. 2,400 Americans died in the first hours on Omaha Beach. Over the next uh, few weeks, 29,000 Americans would give their lives. 100,000 plus would be wounded when God invaded planet Earth to commence a war on sin and evil. It was a quiet invasion. Few people understood what was actually happening. Mary knew because she was pregnant and an angel had come to, her, come to her and told her what was to come and that she would have a baby and she wondered how this could be since she had never been with a man and the angel told her that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and uh, she would, this child would be conceived by the power of God. Mary knew something about this event and this pregnancy. Joseph found the story a bit hard to believe, but the angel had told him and Matthew what was to come. And so he understood that this baby was very unique. It was was going to be a God thing. However, there were people in Israel who were hoping for an invasion by Messiah one day when he would come in as a great king. And he would decimate all of their enemies. Many people in Israel would have loved seeing the first century Roman troops destroyed by God's army. But God had something else in mind. It was a quiet invasion. Luke chapter 2. We'll look at verses 1 through 20. Let me read the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That was a quiet invasion. Okay, let's talk about the backstory. story. I want to encourage you to follow along in your outlines in your programs, the backstory in verses 1 through 5, Luke, the writer and historian, gives careful details of these events. He's done his research, and here's what he says. He says, in those days, this is around the time that Gabriel came to Mary, and then he's going to come to Joseph, and we're going to see that next week in Matthew's account, and he, you know, he's already visited Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth has had her baby. Luke marks out that Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavian, was the emperor of Rome at this time, and he was actually the emperor from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D., about 41 years. So this is during the early life of Jesus. And this is the most powerful human being on earth, in Luke's account right here. And Jesus hasn't been born yet, by the way. And uh, this uh, emperor gave a decree, which was a formal written document of law, that a census should be taken, and it doesn't state this, but likely the census was for the purpose of, we're going to collect some taxes in the future, and we want to know who we need to collect them from, and how much money we can count on. And so a census was issued And think about this, the Roman world, and a lot of you know history and some of you don't care, but the Roman world was made up of millions and millions of people. It was many nations, many people groups, and a census was a big undertaking and it took a significant amount of time. The census is in verses 2 and 3, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Quirinius is a Roman name. Quirinius was a Roman put in charge by the Romans to be the governor of Syria in the first century. During this time, Syria, actually Israel, as a little puppet state, is under uh, Roman authority And the actual governor is in Syria. They don't care too much about Israel. And Syria and Israel here are all together under Quirinius. And then he tells us that everyone went to their own town to register. And by the way, this was the custom of Israel. And so the Romans had adapted to Israeli custom about Okay, you need to register where your family records are kept. So this means you have to go back for the census. You have to go back to the town where your family records are kept. The situation is in verses 4 and 5. So Joseph also went up from this town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the town of David. Because he belonged to the house and line of David. So Luke just gives these details. Uh, Let's see that on the map. This is last week's map. So Joseph lives in Nazareth. Mary lives in Nazareth. By this time, Joseph has taken her uh, to be his wife. According to Matthew's gospel in chapter 1. But, but he had been instructed, and uh, they had not had any um, intimate relations at this point. It's going to be after the birth of Jesus. So Joseph and Mary from Nazareth have to go to the town where Joseph's family is registered. Joseph is a descendant of David, King David, 900 years early, earlier, the great king, And and David's town is Bethlehem. It's a small town outside of Jerusalem. So that's where Joseph is going to take Mary. And uh, it's going to be a roughly 75-mile trek. And uh, apparently um, Mary is in her last trimester, perhaps last week's. It's going to be a three- or four-day journey. And he went there to register with Mary. Now, Mary didn't have to go. She wasn't required to be present. Doesn't say why she's there. You know, you would think, well, why don't you just stay home with family, you know, in case the baby comes? Why do you think Mary accompanied Joseph in this situation? Micah chapter 5, verse 2, I think is a pretty significant clue. And, uh, About 800 years before the birth of Christ, Micah the prophet gives this information. God's people Israel in those days know this refers to the Messiah. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small, and it was, it was a small town, among the clans of Judah, Judah is the the provincial territory, Judea, the tribe of Judah owned that property. Out of you will come for me. This will be a God, God's person. Uh, he will represent God. He will speak for God. One who will be ruler over Israel. This is going to be a great man, a great person. He's going to be a ruler. A lot of passages in the Old Testament talked about Messiah being ruler, a ruler, over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, that is a very, very strong clue who this is. this doesn 't look real impressive to us. The Jewish reader understood this very clearly. The Hebrew understood this as from ancient uh, whose origins are from of old from ancient times humans didn 't uh, come from origins of old into the present. And the, 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 uh, the Jewish people understood this to refer to eternity past. That this uh, being had an eternal existence. Only God has an eternal exist, existence. There's no uh, beginning in time for God. And this was a very unique prophecy. I'm guessing that Mary knew that the baby should be born in Bethlehem. And they just figured out how it gets orchestrated. They have to go to Bethlehem. The birth of Jesus uh, in verses 6 and 7, while they were there, that is Bethlehem, The time came for the baby to be born. She's full term. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And to say, when Luke says uh, it's the birth of her firstborn, it's obvious that there are other children. And everybody knew that. Uh, Mark 3.31 is one of those passages that identifies Jesus as brothers and sisters. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room. I like this translation. I read the old NIV. This is the newer NIV, New International Version, because there was no guest room available for them. And, you know, she wrapped him in cloths, which was the custom of the day. They were individual strips, and the the limbs and the body was individually wrapped, and the desire was to keep the child warm and to give support uh, for this baby. And today we do the same kinds of things with swaddling blankets. Um, And she placed him in a manger. And um, that suggests they're in an animal shelter. And tradition says that it was a cave. And maybe it was because the text doesn't tell us exactly where this location is. The translation I read earlier said there was no room for them at the inn. Well, Bethlehem was really small. There may have not been any inns in Bethlehem as we think about them. You know, like a motel or holiday inn or whatever. Guest rooms were typically uh, additions to somebody's home like an extra room. There were no guest rooms available. When you think about Jesus, when you think about Joseph going back to Bethlehem, he probably had relatives there. doesn't say in the text where they stayed. Think about this. Houses were one room. Put your whole family in one room. Now, what if you have a census and you have relatives from all over coming to town? How many people did they get into one room? A lot. You know, what if you got there and there were already 20 or 25 people sleeping in this one room? Also, um, it, Jesus could have been born in, in a uh, cave. He could have been in, born in an outbuilding that uh, took in animals, and it may have been a lean to stuck to the house, right outside the house. But the key is, he was placed in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. This is not the typical way that moms take care of their babies when they have a plan. Usually don't put your babies in a manger. Even then, moms didn't do that. Um, So she placed him in a manger. So um, Philip Yancey wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew, and he asked this question, How did Christmas Day feel to God? How did Christmas Day feel to God? He says, imagine for a moment becoming a baby again, giving up language and muscle coordination and the ability to eat solid food and control your bladder because that's what Jesus did when he humbled himself to become human, the God of the universe. Next slide. God as a fetus on that day in Bethlehem, the maker of all that is took form as a helpless, dependent newborn. That's that's humility. That's a humbling event. God could have done it any way he wanted to. He could have invaded this earth any way. Now, the second time he comes, the second invasion is going to be awesome. It's going to make D-Day in 1944 look like Nothing. But the way he came the first time, we call the first advent. Second advent is to come. The first advent was quiet. And imagine the first sounds of Jesus as he cried and gave hope to Mary and Joseph. Verses 8 through 20, the good news about Jesus. We have the close encounter. This is a close encounter of the third kind, in case any of you here remember that there's a movie called that. The close encounter. Verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, shepherds were not considered to be the rich and the famous. And they handled sheep, by the way which are not necessarily super clean animals. And if you handle any sheep, any animals all day long, um, animal stuff as well as animals, um, they were viewed and ceremonially unclean by the religious community. This is close to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's like four or five miles away from Jerusalem where the temple of God is. And that's where they sacrifice lambs. Perhaps these shepherds are caring for the sheep that uh, many will be sacrificed later at the temple in Jerusalem. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified, which would be illogical. You know, it got dark around there about 5 p.m. at this time of year and they had no internet or TV or, you know, LCD lighting. And um, God put on an amazing light show for them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. Just lit them up. It was the glory of God. Now this is like a big deal. Um, And God sent an angel, verse 9, to speak to them. and And the angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. And, you know, one of the things that we see, at the first coming of Jesus, there's a whole lot of supernatural stuff happening. All during his life. I mean, supernatural just day after day after day. And then after Jesus returns to heaven, and angels announcing his birth, angels... uh, Reminding his disciples that he returned to heaven. And uh, there's all kinds of demonic fallen angel activity during the life of Jesus. Because there was so much, uh, you know, God on earth was such a threat to the enemy. Especially in the land of Israel in those days. And one of the things I would just say, Jesus is coming again. We should never be surprised as we get close to that, the supernatural just begins to blossom again. And I think angels will be involved again. And they won't be just sort of like, I think maybe it was an angel. It'll be like, this was a real angel. And I think we're going to find more demonic activity as we go toward his second coming. It's just my uh, observation, personal. The good news, verses 10 through 12. But the angel said to them, uh, Do not be afraid. And we've seen that over and over in the Gospel of Luke already. Luke chapter 1, verse 13, the angel appeared to Zechariah and he was scared to death. And Luke chapter 1, verse 30, the angel appeared to Mary and right away the uh, the angel says, Mary, don't be afraid. And uh, in in, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, the, the same angel appeared to Joseph and he told Joseph not to be afraid. Do not be afraid, I bring you good news. Good news that will cause great joy for all the people. The good news is for all the people. The gospel is for all people. And that was good news. Not just for a nation, not just for Jewish people, but for all people. The, good, the message, the good news will bring great joy because it's for all people. Here Today, in the town of David, that would be Bethlehem. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And that's loaded with information. The day is today, the angel is saying. This is D-Day. It's going to take, you're going to, Go to the town of David, Bethlehem. The good news is that a Savior has been born to you. By the way, uh, Caesar Augustus, when he was born, was called Savior as well. And all through the Roman Empire, the message went out that a new Savior had been born. But this is the real Savior. He, He will be Jesus. And ultimately, he will die on a cross and save his people from their sins. But this is just his birth. He's got his whole life ahead. His whole mission will be laid out. And ultimately, he will give himself in obedience to his father as a sacrifice for sin. This is good news. Mary doesn't understand it all yet. Joseph doesn't understand it. I'm not even sure the angel understood it at this point. Certainly the shepherds weren't able to understand it. And this uh, child would be called Messiah. This is a big deal because people in the Old Testament were looking forward. There were many prophecies about this one, this special one, this holy one. He would be Messiah. He would be the anointed one. Uh, We call... the Greek, or the Hebrew, the concept is Messiah. The Greek is the Christ. And so Messiah is the Christ. And um, he will be the anointed one. In the Old Testament, kings, when like when King David became the king of Israel, he was anointed with oil. He was the anointed one. But this king, who will be king of kings and lord of lords, is anointed with oil. God, the Holy Spirit, not with oil. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. And the people have been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years for the birth of this son. And the, and the angel gives one more clue. He is the Lord. You don't say that about any other human being. He is the Lord. He is for you, for all people. He is the Lord. We call him the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, There, will be, the angel tells the shepherds, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Nothing unusual about finding a baby wrapped in claws. They're supposed to go to Bethlehem, but this baby is going to be lying in a manger. Oh, that's a bit unusual. Babies don't lie in mangers. So, the angel said, This is going to be a sign. This is going to be the thing that points this child out. This will be how you identify him. God has orchestrated these events for you. This is a sign. A baby wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. When you find this baby, you have found the Lord. This is good news. J.I. Packer puts it this way. Uh, He says, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Next slide. Because of the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, 30 years or so, he might hang on a cross. That's the Christmas message. Jesus had a purpose for coming. His invasion was purposeful. And ultimately, it would be be a sacrifice. This is the incarnation of Christ. God coming to the earth to become a man, to become human. Verses 13 and 14, we see a worshipful response. Look at verse 13. Suddenly... "...a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests." So God puts on a bigger light show now. Thousands and thousands of angels appear. That's what a heavenly host is. It's a myriad number of angels appear and they praise God with the loudest hallelujah chorus. I don't know what they were singing. The loudest hallelujah chorus you've ever heard. For the shepherds, in front of the shepherds, to experience this. Glory to God in the highest in heaven, on earth. That's where we are. Peace. Now, this isn't peace where it's just absence of conflict. Or absence of difficulty. This piece is shalom. It's about God's well-being when God is in charge, and it's God's order, peace in your life when things are okay with you and God, and it's it's those circumstances that enable you um, to prosper. I'm not talking about financially. I'm talking about with your life to be fruitful. That's the kind of peace. To those on whom his favor rests. This is a God thing. This giving his son is a God thing. It's God's favor. We call it grace. It's unmerited favor. It's not deserved. Um, It's his gift. And this is uh, the beginning of God bringing his salvation by sending his Savior A salvation that is by grace on whom God's favor rests. Verses 15 and 16, that trip to see the baby when the angels had left them and gone into heaven. So the angels returned back to heaven. the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem. What a good idea. And see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. They recognize God has revealed this to them. Shepherds. Who would have thought? So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger, just like the angel said. Now, what can we learn from the shepherds? You know what? They believed what God said about this baby. They just stepped into action. They, this is, they, this is, they responded in faith. They believed what God said about the baby. Can you trust God for what he says about this baby, about this person, about Jesus? The good news spreads in verses 17 and 18. When they had seen him, when they had seen Jesus, when the shepherds saw this baby, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds couldn't contain this whole story that these angels had come to them and, and there's been this marvelous light and the glory of God appeared and they said there's going to be a baby and he's going to be born in Bethlehem and, and that he's going to be wrapped in cloths and that he's going to be in a manger and it, that's what it was. Just like God said, and he's here and he's the savior of the world and he's Messiah, he's the Lord. And so they just probably started knocking on doors and everybody they met on the road they just started telling people about what was happening. Verses 19 and 20, we see the response to this good news. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now, you know, you've heard the Christmas story so many times. What about Mary? She's a young girl, you know, probably a young teenager. We know we would but extremely common that she be a teenager and she had not been married and she became pregnant and she'd never slept with the man and that's got to be a pretty unique experience and offering her body to God as a living sacrifice and she has to carry this child for nine months what an adventure and the angel appeared to her and she, so this is real this is, she knows God is doing something what's he up to and now uh, the baby comes, and here he is, and uh, we're in Bethlehem, and we, that's just fulfilled Micah 5 2. And now God sent these angels, or sent these uh, uh, shepherds, and they bring all this about the angels coming to them. God, what is this all about? What is this going to mean to our family? What is this child going to be like? What's going to happen? What's going to be my role? Mary, just reflecting. Do you reflect when God works in your life what he's doing? Why he's doing it? What he wants to do in the future? The shepherd returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The shepherds are filled with joy and excitement. They've had this mountaintop experience, to say the least, with God. They've seen God at work. God picked them. Why them? They're not important people. The angels came to them. They were the first people we know that got to see the baby. The Lord, the Messiah, the Savior for all people. And they worship and they praise God. They continue to be amazed and they talk about this over and over again. And all they can do is worship. They're so amazed by God's grace, His favor for them. Okay, I have three lessons. Three lessons. The first one is God knows your whole story. God knows you. He knows all about you. Think about how God knew Mary and her situation and the details of her life, and he, he put Mary into his story and included in her in what he was doing, and God picked Joseph. He knew all about Joseph, and he knew what it was going to take to get them to Bethlehem, and he knew what it was going to be about to raise this child and have God be an infant. And God knew the kind of father that Jesus would need. I mean, try raising a kid without sin, you know? What kind of questions do you think Jesus asked Joseph when he was growing up? When your kids know more than you do. That happens. Uh, And God picked him to be parents. God had a plan for them. He had a plan for Jesus. Jesus. God laid out the whole plan for Jesus' life, his whole story from infancy to death, every detail. And God knows your whole story, and he wants to involve you in his story. Uh, Psalm 139 uh, says this, You have searched me. This is David. He says, God, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Next slide. You, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. David understood that God knew his whole story. And he knows everything about you. He knows um, the good things you've done. He knows those things that maybe are disappointing to you or disappointing to him. He knows the things that uh, you're afraid of. He knows your dreams. God knows your story, and he wants you to be in his story. Second lesson, God does great things in humble places with humble people. Mary and Joseph were humble people. The shepherds were humble people. Um, they met together in some kind of animal shelter. That was a pretty humble place. And Jesus was born there. This is where God chose to invade planet Earth. And God wants us to be humble people. You can write down 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. I'm going to read another passage, and we're not going to read that one, but you can write that one down. Because that just reminds us that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble one of my favorite passages is uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 5 through 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Meaning he had this really high position, and when he came to this earth, he didn't just do all the, hey, you've got to treat me like God. I'll call the shots here. No, he humbled himself. But he made himself nothing. That's what he did when he was born in Bethlehem. He, he made himself uh, to, to be very small. Taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. That's what the incarnation is all about. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death, on a cross, God does great things in humble places with humble people. He wants us to be humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under god 's mighty hand that He might lift you up in due time. God wants to use He wants to be in your story, and He wants to use humble people. And the last thing is is that God sent His Son Jesus for you. that 's the good news. God sent His Son, Jesus, for you. Uh, God sent Jesus to be born as an infant. He would live. He would become a great teacher. He would be the greatest example who ever lived. And ultimately, He would become the greatest sacrifice of all. He would lay down His life. He would be nailed to the cross. And He would pay the penalty for our sins. He would pay the penalty for the sins of the entire world. We call this uh, the substitutionary atonement because this is why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. God became a man. When Jesus died on the cross, his life was infinitely valuable because of who he is. He's God. Anything less than God would have been finite. The sin penalty is finite. No matter how many sins are committed and how many people live on this earth, it's always going to be finite. And Jesus' life paid for all sin for all time forever. And there's nothing you and I can ever add to that. God sent His Son, Jesus, for you. John 3.16 is one of those great reminders. He says, For God so loved the world and that that he loved the world is that he so loved all people. That he so loved you and he so loved me. Now, I've, I've shared my story many times. When I grew up, I just pictured God like one of the astronauts looking down at the earth, a little globe out in space, and he loved the globe. Okay, that doesn't feel very personal. What I didn't understand was God loved me Knows everything about my story, every detail, all of my sin and crap. We don't say that word in our house. (laughs) And he loves me anyway. It took me over 25 years to understand that. For God so loved you and me that he gave his one and only son. That's what happened in Bethlehem. That whoever, anybody, everybody, all people have this opportunity. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish because perishing is the consequence of not believing. Perishing here is not just physical death. It's eternal death. Whoever believes will have eternal life. It's more than eternal life. It's life right now. It's in a spiritual dimension right now. God sent his son for you, for me. God did this because he loves you. Sometimes we think that, well, God, if you love me, you wouldn't wouldn't let this happen to me. There's some bad things that have happened. God, if you love me, you wouldn't let that happen. Or we say, God, if you love me, you would do this and this and this but it doesn't work that way. We don't get to put God on a performance basis. He is not on our performance standards. He has his own performance standards that are working quite well, by the way. One writer puts it this way. The gospel is the counterintuitive, joyous, exuberant news, good news, that brought the unending, limitless, stunning love of God to even us. That's good news. It's the limitless, stunning love of God. God loves you more than you will ever ever know. A lot of you in this room know that. There's still some people who just aren't quite sure about this. Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul writes this, for it is by grace you've been saved. Uh, The Apostle Paul explains here how we are saved, how people experience salvation, how people can be saved from the penalty of their own sin. He says it's by grace. That's what the uh, angels, that's what the angels said. It would be good news of great joy for all the people, and it's about God's favor resting on them. This is God's favor. It is by grace, His favor, unmerited favor. You can't, you don't deserve God's favor. You never will deserve God's favor. You're never going to be good enough. So just get over it. It's, uh, you'll be saved save from the penalty of sin, because uh, the Bible says we all are sinners, everyone, all people, and the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages, the consequences of sin is death, and that's a reference to an eternal spiritual death, eternal separation from God forever. That's what John 3.16 means about perishing And this is not from yourselves. It's not about you. It's not about how did you perform today? Are you good enough? It's not about you. It is a gift of God. For God so loved the world that he gave. It was a gift. The the issue is, will you receive it on his terms, not your terms? It's not by works. It's not by being good. It's not saying, well, gee, do I have enough good things going here for me? God, I did this, and I did this, and I did this. I try to do this, Nope, it's not that. It's not about being religious. Because if we did, we would start thinking that some of us are better than others. We would boast. I would say, do you know all the things I've done? I'm a pastor. You know, I've, I surely get some credit for doing some sermons. And you know how many funerals I've done? And you know how many little old females I've helped cross the street? It's not about works, it's by grace, it's through faith. It's about believing what God has said about his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, the question is, can you trust Jesus Christ, who he is, what God has said about him, that he died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for your sins? Can you trust that? They're paid for. There's nothing you can do. I know a lot of you in this room already know that. I would just like to give an opportunity as we close this morning. If you're not sure, if you've not understood that before, to place your faith in Christ this morning and trust him to save you from the penalty of your sins. And so one of the ways that we can express faith, our trust, one of the ways we can state that we believe in God is through prayer. And um, so I'm going to close with a prayer and, and just listen to these words. Could you make this prayer yours? If you've already become a follower of Christ, you don't need to re-pray this. But if you haven't, I want to invite you to pray this with me, silently from your own heart. It's going to go like this. I'm going to go through it the first time, explain it. Second time, I'll pray. and let you join me if you choose. The prayer will be like this. Dear God, thank you that Jesus Christ died for me. I just recognize that he is Savior. Only he can save me from the penalty of my sin. I trust him right now. I believe what you said. And I want to invite Jesus into my life. And I want to ask him to help me to be the person he wants me to be. I want to follow him. That's that's what we're asking. Now, if that prayer made sense, I just want to, if you've, if you are not a follower of Christ, I want to invite you to pray that with me, just where you are, silently, from your own heart, just, Repeat this back to God. Let's let's bow in prayer, everyone. Dear God, I thank you that Jesus Christ died for my sins, that he, that he paid the price for me. I trust him right now. I, I do believe what you said about your son. And right now, I ask, That Jesus will come into my life and that Jesus will help me to be the person that he wants me to be. Thank you for this gift. If you prayed that prayer with me, would you just slip up your hand wherever you're seated so I can see. If you prayed along with me right now, just slip up your hand wherever you are. Okay, you can put your hands down. Father, I thank you for those um, who've indicated they've trusted Jesus right now, and I pray that you will enable them and um, help them sense your presence in their life, and that their sins are forgiven right now, and they can have that confidence, that you have given them eternal life. Father, for all of us, I pray um, that we might be mindful of of the wonderful gift you've given us that we would reflect on that that we would respond in humility and be worshipers thank you for sending your son in our behalf in Jesus name Amen now usually when um, I do a prayer like that uh, there are some people in the room who prayed along with me but they didn't raise their hand and you know what that's quite all right. but let me encourage you would you tell someone if you prayed that prayer? And I'd love for you if you wanted to slip up sometime after the service and mention that to me. But share that with somebody else, okay? Next, next Sunday, 4 p.m. is Christmas Eve, candlelight service. I've asked you, who will you invite? Please invite somebody. Let's pack this room out on Christmas Eve at 4 o'clock. God bless you all. We're dismissed.